Changes afoot in big cities across the United States. Denver is backtracking on widely heralded school reforms. Chicago's Rahm Emanuel, the mayor the Chicago Teachers Union loved to hate, has now been replaced. Key members of Los Angeles' school reform coalition have suffered electoral defeats. Boston has picked a new superintendent that's likely to move off in a new direction from those that were leading the city in the past. What does this all portend for student learning in our nation's largest school districts? Since 2003, the National Assessment of Educational Progress has been tracking changes in student performances on tests in reading and math in over 20 cities. We now have better evidence than ever before on the broad trends in urban education that may be responding to deeper forces than those headlined in the daily news broadcast. Kristen Blagg, a research associate at the Center on Education Data and Policy at the Urban Institute, has been taking a deep dive into this vast uh, urban data set, and she's with me here today on the Education Exchange. Kristen, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. So Kristen, you say that students in large cities gained 30% of a standard deviation over the decade between 2003 and 2013. Is, is, is that a lot or a little? 30% of a standard deviation, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, sure, so 30% of a standard deviation on the NAEP tests is about, um, a standard deviation is about 30 points. So it's about a, a 10 point increase. Um, over over that decade, and I, I should add that it has moderated a bit over time. So we have seen the 2015 and 2017 scores sort of stay at about that level and not increase. Um, but certainly from 2003 to to 2013, we did see that rise. So is that is that essentially a year's worth of education? Would you say, or is it two years worth, or how, how would you estimate that? So like so I know there's a standard deviation between fourth grade performance and eighth grade performance. So how, how would you characterize this? So, so it's a bit tough because the equivalency between standard deviations and, um, and, and change in the grade level is a little, a little different. I know that I can directly speak to, to what, what that is in grade levels. Okay, so but this is certainly larger than the gains that you're getting if, among all students in the United States. There is a general improvement in student performance over this period of time from 2003 to 2013. All students gained about, what, 20% of a standard deviation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have seen a, a similar gain. Um, we just look at uh, scores of public students nationally, but we've seen it um, not a, not a steep gain as we've seen for the large cities. So yeah, you're right that about a little less than 20% um, uh, of a standard deviation overall across all four NAEP tests, so that's um, math and reading, fourth and eighth grade, um, but uh, a gain of more like 30% for the large cities. So it's it's really you know fifty you know half again as much of a gain. So it's not just like a, a little bit of difference. It's a it's a pretty sizable difference between what's going on in cities and going on more generally, wouldn't you say? Uh, it, it is pretty substantial, and it's one of the things that motivates um, motivates our paper and motivates our look into large cities. So now you notice that. Uh, or you document the fact that there were these big gains from 2003 to 2013, and you just mentioned something that I noticed in your data as well, which is there, there haven't been any gains in the last uh, four years between 2013 and 2017. We're waiting to see what's going to happen next, but for four years we haven't seen any any gains. Now, does that mean that the uh, progress that was being registered has come to an end, and there's some new 
uh, forces at work in American education? I mean, not necessarily. Um, we know that we know that there's a margin of error in these tests, and these tests can go up and down. And um, in 2015, in particular, you know, was it? Do we just hit a bad year? Do we hit you know sort of the bottom of the distribution? And and we've been hitting sort of the top in other in other years. Yeah, but you look at it, it happened in 2015 and again in 2017. It yes. wasn't just a one-year blip. It's been you know we've got two document two points that show quite a different pattern than the pattern that was preceding it. It's it's got to be at least. Uh, a uh, disturbing sign. It may not be conclusive, but it's got to be at least a, a disturbing sign, wouldn't you say? It's tr certainly something we should pay attention to, but I should note that in 2017, that was the first year that the assessment was given um, digitally, so on tablets instead of on paper. Um, and we do think that the format of the test matters. So um, there's a potential that part of what we're seeing is that transition to a new format, which, um, which may have dampened scores somewhat as well. Well, let's hope that's what's uh, what's driving it. Because if if that if it's just a technical matter, then we we don't have to think that uh, some of the accomplishments of the past. But you could actually point to the fact that it was in 2013 that we began to abandon the enforcement of No Child Left Behind. The accountability system uh, becomes uh, deeply eroded. We create the Common Core standards, which are supposed to be the great new thing, but. We don't see any progress under the Common Core Standards. Uh, that's a possible alternative explanation to uh, sort of this technical one that you've uh, suggested. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly so many explanations here because we're, um, what, we're, what we're trying to do with our paper is really just get an under, a descriptive understanding of, of national achievement and particularly achievement in large cities. Um, but you could attribute this change to any number of potential hypotheses. You well, could, the other you could thing that really changes right about that exact time is that uh, – there's a down, downward tick in the financing of, of schools. So it, it actually starts a little bit before 2013, but uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, steady upward increase in support for education that's been traditionally the case in American education uh, sort of comes uh, to an end in the period following the Great Recession. Right. Yeah, you could certainly point to, to funding changes, and we know they might have been a bit delayed because we did have the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act come in and sort of supplement those funds. Um, so we know that there was a little bit of a, of a delay in terms of um, the, the sort of drop-off of investments. It didn't happen exactly in 2008, but it did happen a little bit later on. Um, you, you could point to any a number of things also outside the system itself. So perhaps there were changes in the social, social safety net um, that, you know, affected uh, children's and families' health. Well, what was that? What um, would those be? Uh, I, I'm saying you could point to any a number of... Uh, we do know that there was a change in the financing and education. We do know that the accountability system uh, sort of uh, underwent uh, a dramatic uh, revision. We do know that there was a creation of Common Core Standards. These are, these are plausible things. But let's shift the topic here to uh, looking at the places where you have seen the greatest gains over this period of time. And you come up with an unlikely combination of the top five cities. One of the things you do in your study that's particularly interesting is you adjust for the demographic change. So you take out of the picture the story while the city composition is just changing and we can't. Um, but you, you, when you compare all these cities that are um, uh, participating in the uh, uh, national assessment in, in a comprehensive way, 
you, you, you find that Chicago, Washington, D.C., Boston, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, and Atlanta are the top five. Uh, maybe Los Angeles is up there as well. That's a very strange combination of cities. Can you give me any uh, thoughts as to why those cities are coming up on top, or at least some of them are coming up on top? Sure. So I think the first thing to do is to walk through a little bit the um, the demographic adjustment that we're doing. So um, as, as you mentioned, um, we know that these cities are, are not identical, um, and we know that they serve very different populations of students. So it may not be you know necessarily fair to compare Boston to Miami-Dade or to compare uh, you know Dallas to to Washington D.C. Um, they you know, they serve different shares of English language learners, different shares of, of students from low-income households. Um, and so the goal of the demographic adjustment is to take the individual level characteristics of the students and to look at their scores and compare them to demographically similar peers. Um, and so as you mentioned, when we do that, the sort of rank order of, of these scores uh, do change quite a bit. Um, one of the things I should note is a lot of the cities that rise to the top in this type of analysis um, are located in states that also rise to a top in a similar analysis we've done at the state level. Um, so Massachusetts, Texas, and Florida in particular are states that are, are sort of in, in the top part of our analysis of demographically adjusted state NAEP scores. Yeah, but that doesn't account for Washington, D.C. What do you, why do you think Washington, D.C. looks so, pre, so uh, uh, amazingly uh, high-performing in this, uh, in this, or at least improving dramatically in this, in this analysis? So, so the question about improvement is one that um, we've looked at separately, and you know, again, as I mentioned, our goal is not to, to look at the effects of any given policy, but one hypothesis that's been put forward about Washington, D.C. in particular is that the demographics of the city have changed quite a bit over that intervening period, and there's some concern that, you know, maybe this isn't actually um, sort but of... But you've adjusted for that, right? Right, So but then, what does you, then what does that lead you to? Once you've adjusted for that, you can't say that's the explanation. But when you're getting to this question of change over time, we, we can do a little bit of a, of a that's the only sort of um, analysis we do where we try to sort of decompose this effect a little bit. Mm -hmm. So um, in that case, what we do is we look at the score in 2005, and we say, okay, well, how were, were students from different demographics performing then? How were low-income students, what was the average score? Mm -hmm. For low-income students versus high-income students, sort of what was the relationship between the demographics of the student and the eventual, eventual score they had on that test? Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we say, okay, well, we know the demographics in the city have shifted. And we know, that, you know if there are more students with a demographic profile that would indicate that they'd score potentially higher on this test, well, then we're going, when we predict, we're going to predict that relationship. So in D.C., you did see this increase in, in students that we would predict might score higher. And so in that case, we were predicting a, a score increase um, in the 2013 or 2015 school year. What we could find is that um, Washington, D.C., um, actually, um, the actual scores for those years were higher than our predicted score. So if we just looked at the demographic change alone, um, we would have predicted that Washington, D.C. would have scored well, but they actually outscored what we would have predicted. So there's so something else. So what do you else. think the reasons are for that? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, after all, I mean, Washington, D.C. is quite a, a notable city in the fact that we, we had a, a major uh, effort to uh, change the way in which teachers were compensated, uh, and teachers were evaluated, we had a much enlarged uh, uh, charter sector. So are, are these the driving forces in Washington, D.C., or is it some uh, force from uh, from outer space that changed <laughs> things in Washington, D.C.? I, I mean, I leave it to others to... I, I think one of the things that we have to be really careful about uh, as researchers is is to, to know our bounds, right? And in this analysis, the only thing that I can really um, show is that it it's not entirely as far as we can see, the result of demographics. But we don't look specifically at um, any particular policy and and projecting forth the, the sort of causal impact of that policy. I can say one of the things I really look forward to um, working with this data some more is um, on the state level, we want to look at changes in policy over this period and potentially look at um, at how, how we might see evidence of that in the data in student and teacher surveys and, and think a little bit more about how state-level policy changes may have affected. The great thing about NAEP is it's a consistent yardstick for us to, to look at changes uh, over time and across districts and states. Um, but the unfortunate thing about NAEP is that we don't get really specific data on what might be driving those changes. So you actually do one thing that's very clever. You, you uh, look at the free and reduced lunch measure and you, and you say, uh, you warn other researchers, don't depend too heavily on that because mm-hmm. uh, that's really not capturing poverty in the way that it once uh, did and uh, is often thought to continue to. So what exactly is the problem with the free and reduced lunch indicator as a measure of family income? Sure. So um, particularly in the past few years, but even before then, districts that have high levels of poverty and schools that have high levels of poverty have been able to take advantage of provisions that make it easier for them to give um, to give school lunch to their students uh, without the um, sort of annual um, collection of free and reduced price lunch paperwork. Um, this is great. We have, we have studies that show that this is um, making a difference for students in terms of potentially affecting their behavior and potentially affecting their academics. Uh, but it makes it a little bit harder for us researchers to get a, a good sense of um, the proportion of student need in a, in a district or a school because districts um, are not collecting income forms as regularly as they, as they um, have in the past. So they're just assuming everybody in the city is poor uh, if a certain percentage are, or they're going to treat the city as, as a, a universal uh, free and reduced eligible place. Yeah, and particularly in 2005 on the NAEP, um, it's actually the districts and schools that are administering um, the, the most recent provision is the community eligibility provision. Um, they actually have a choice. So they can do what you said, which is say, well, everyone in our school is getting free, and everyone in our school is getting, or district is getting free lunch. We're 100% free and reduced price lunch. 
Um, so we're not going to collect the data. It, well, <laughs> um, but there are, there is data being collected, and the data that's being collected is um, what's known as direct certification, or um, which is the share of students that are directly certified as being eligible because they're from a household that participates in SNAP or participates in TANF. In some states, um, they're also looking at the income levels of families that are participating in Medicaid. So um, we, we have that sort of direct certification percentage. So and what you're really saying is there's so much variety out there that uh, you can't really make comparisons across very easily. You've got to come up with alternative uh, ways of m measuring household income. Right. So some schools are, are reporting 100% free and reduced price lunch based off their community eligibility, while other schools are only reporting the share of students that were directly certified for free and reduced price lunch. Um, which is that SNAP or TANF percentage, um, which probably is an underestimate. So we, we have this sort of overestimate or underestimate of what might be thought of as the true um, free and reduced price lunch percentage yep. in these schools. And so to, to sort of recover that in these schools that have, um, that have provision status, we've done um, sort of a, a regression model to try to predict based off of everything else we know about that individual student what their free and reduced price lunch measure um, probably is. So we look not only at their um, at their individual characteristics, but we also look at um, at uh, so for example the share of students in Title One um, in their school. We look at um, uh, district factors such as the actual um, poverty levels that have been estimated for that district and, and state level factors as well because we know that a lot of this is driven by how the state actually does that direct certification process or encourages or discourages community eligibility. Well, in the end, you've come up with a very neat solution to a very complex problem and uh, other researchers are going to be uh, uh, much indebted to the care with which you have analyzed this question. Thank you, Kristen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. I have been speaking with Kristen Blagg, Research Associate at the Center for Data and Policy at the Urban Institute. Uh, this is Paul Peterson. Uh, join me every Monday at noon Eastern Time for a new Education Exchange podcast.